Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, over the last number of weeks, we've been talking about heaven. Yeah, we have. Uh, last week, I found it particularly fascinating, but uh, this week again, uh, I not only found it fascinating, but I found that there was something uh, special about this message for you as yeah. well. I thought you were particularly pumped to yeah. talk about what you're going to talk about today. Well, if we're not talking about God, yeah. then we're not talking about heaven. And ultimately, we have to talk about God, who is the object of the desire of everyone who knows Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, we look forward to that. We look forward to what we're going to see in respect to God and heaven. Join us in just a moment right back here on Truth and Life Today. Do you know that up till now, as uh, I've been talking about heaven for a number of weeks, up till now, I've been skirting the issue. I've really not been talking about the main stuff. Uh, and here's why. I mean, I've talked about heaven being a real country that's, uh, that's physical. It's full of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. And, you know, there's going to be eating and drinking in heaven. And I've, I've told that our bodies will not be subject to aging. They'll be renewed. I mean, I've talked about all sorts of things. And in truth, the Bible speaks about that. But everything that I've spoken about up till now has been skirting the main issue. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 22, three to five, listen to what it says. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, ultimately, whatever else I say about heaven, the Bible indicates that the central issue is this. Heaven is the dwelling place of God, and we will see him face to face if we're not talking about God standing before him and seeing his face. We haven't talked about the real issue yet. So I want to talk today about seeing God. Martin Luther once said, I would rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Well, of course, no one's going to be in hell with Christ. You know, as a matter of fact, Luther, however, was expressing something very important, and that is, it's not heaven until we talk about falling at the feet of Christ and standing before the throne of God and gazing upon him. It's not heaven. Uh, I love what Asaph said in Psalm 73, verse 25. He said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And again, Asaph's not saying that there's nothing else that I find lovely or beautiful. The fact is, however, that unless we are in love and enraptured with God himself, we're not talking about the real thing. Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says, I count everything else as rubbish under the greater reflection of, of God. Everything else is rubbish. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He could have said, for me to die is Christ, I will gaze upon him. Listen to Psalm 84, verse one. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs for, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, I know that Psalm 84 is not about heaven. It's about actually entering into the temple compound and standing before the Holy of Holies and, and being you know, just in love with God, reveling in his presence. Listen to verse 10, same Psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So here's what I wanna say. 
Listen, if, if it's not the presence of God that draws you to heaven, you don't want heaven. Indeed, if you haven't come to the place yet where you have become satisfied with a loveliness of God, delighted in God, found God to be the, the source of your pleasure, the reason for your existence, the fountainhead of everything that's lovely, the consummation of everything you've longed for. If that's not what you're shooting for, you're not shooting for heaven. Heaven is about God. It's about reveling in his presence. It's about being overwhelmed with him. You know, I'm reminded of a 17th century German lawyer. He was a poet. He was also a hymn writer. His name was Johann Frank. And Johann Frank wrote these lines, and you might have sung them. Jesus, priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me, long my heart hath panted, till it well nigh fainted, thirsting after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb, I will suffer not to hide thee, ask for naught beside thee. See, that's ultimately the main thing. There is this hunger, this longing that I will see him. You know, whether or not we're speaking about Christ and uh, falling before him and calling him our Lord and God or before the throne room of the Father himself and glorying in him, this ultimately is the centerpiece of everything that we talk about when we talk about heaven. Now, the reason I've, I've withheld this conversation till this point in time is because I fear that sometimes when we talk about heaven and seeing God, people then get this sense about, you know, living on a cloud and everything is, you know, somehow not real and physical. And, and I've wanted to take that away. But, but now in this real physical world to come, we, we, we will see God as he is. Now, a couple of other things I want to make mention of. Um, you know, when individuals study the book of Revelation, I'm sometimes, uh, you know, amazed how often when we study Revelation, we'll, we'll talk about things like, I mean, what are the things that are to come in the future, and when will the Antichrist rise, and what is the ten-nation confederacy, and, and a whole other, you know, a host of images that we find in Revelation, but we miss the main thing. Listen, chapter four of Revelation, chapter five, chapter seven, chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19, those are eight significant chapters in Revelation that have a significant section of praise and adoration to him who is seated on the throne. I mean, if you're discussing revelation and are not discussing worship and the presence of God and reveling in his presence, you haven't studied the book at all. I, I, here's what I fear. Some people in, in, in looking at Revelation, you know, are interested in timelines and, and a discussion about what is the actual timing of the Lord's return rather than their hearts being enraptured of him who reveals himself throughout that book. So I'm just trying to make the same point. I'm trying to get us this, this impression that until our hearts are motivated towards God, we're not talking about him. So I think when we talk about heaven, we're going to have to talk about worship and about finding our pleasure in God. Now it's only then that we can actually discuss what it means when we see him face to face.
know, I've heard more than one person say that, you know, heaven is far more than an endless church service. I mean, heaven is all about, you know, our creativity and being fully human and all those things. And, and I'm not in disagreement with that, but I fear when we say that, some of us have this image of heaven that doesn't see the worship of God as the central plank. And so let me say it here, if, if you don't find pleasure in God, if your heart's desire is not to worship him, I don't think you've been born again and I don't think you're going to heaven. If it's not about God for you in the end, if that's not you know, that which your soul pants after, you need to ask God to replace the heart of stone that's inside you and give you this heart of flesh that finds delight in God. The greatest privilege that any human being can ever have, indeed, the reason for your creation is so that you might worship your creator. Worship of God is a central plank of all that we are. Uh, Listen to Psalm 37, verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, it says. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Wow. Listen to Jeremy Taylor, who says, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. God threatens us if we don't find our joy in him. Well, let's discuss why that might be. But before I do, let's agree on something. Human beings were created to pursue and desire happiness. I mean, we just are. Let me quote to you from one of the great philosophers. His name was Blaise Pascal, French philosopher. He said, all men seek happiness. This without exception, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. And then he says, the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. In other words, some people go to war because they want this passion of glory for their country. I mean, that's what fills their heart and inflames them with pride. I mean, it's the passion of their heart. Some stay home because that's the passion of their heart. But both of them, says Pascal, are motivated by the same thing, and it's pleasure, it's joy, it's, it's happiness. And then he says, the will never takes the least step but to this object. In other words, happiness is what motivates every single human being. So let me get back to C.S. Lewis, because he says something very interesting about our happiness in God. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me at least until later in his life. He said, I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval or giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows from praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise, listen to this, not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. I have a little bit of an illustration of that, and it may seem trite. But I just uh, celebrated my wife's birthday, and, and, and uh, I gave her a watch, and it, you know, it's one of these Apple watches. I don't know if I'm allowed to make an, an advertisement here, but, but I gave it to her, and then I watched her. She charged it up, and she started using it. She had it on her wrist and so forth, and I was just watching her, and she looked up, and she said, what? And I said to her, you know, I, I'm just finding so much happiness in your happiness. I mean, I think what I was trying to say to her, that unless I express to you how joyful that I am in you, I haven't yet expressed 
how much I love you. And I think every one of us intuitively understands that. Love doesn't happen without expression of that joy. And that's what worship is. It is telling God that we find satisfaction in him and that not only do we find that satisfaction, we've got to tell him, we've got to find ways of expressing that. Now, on this side of heaven, uh, we know that we're limited in many ways. Uh, We know that our ability to communicate is limited by our own fallenness. We know also that our own sin interrupts our pure pleasure of God. So all sorts of things crowd into expressing pleasure in God, but all of those impediments are taken away in the world to come. In fact, there is a freedom of expression of pleasure in heaven, which is unbounded in a way in which it's bounded here. And that ultimately is what we're talking about. Now, when we talk about heaven, I I began by quoting Revelation 22, verse 4, and it says, they will see his face. I think this is a very important feature of heaven because we need to ask ourselves, what is it to see the face of God? And I've often struggled with that because, I mean, here's the thing. What is it that we expect to see? Now, for those of you who do not yet have the biblical image of God, what I'm about to say is going to be surprising. And those of you who have the biblical image just need to be reminded of these things. So let me begin here. In John 4, 24, when Jesus spoke about the Father, he said, God is spirit. See, what does that mean? Well, as we read through the Old Testament, we find out that God is spirit means he has no physical form. At least at the outset, it means that. So for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, when God is giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, listen to what it says. It says, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Moses says, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. In fact, the Bible says no one has ever seen God. Later on in the same chapter of Deuteronomy, in fact, uh, chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, uh, Moses said, therefore, watch yourself carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. He says, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, and, and, and so on. In other words, don't you dare make an engraved image of anything that is on the earth or in the heavens. That is, God is not like that because he has no form. Whenever we create a mental image of God, this is what he looks like, or we actually craft one physically, it's called idolatry. It's viewing God other than he is. See, here's a profound mystery. What do we see when we actually see God? Because it seems there's nothing to see. The Bible says that God is spirit. So we need to ask ourselves, what is it saying to us when it says God is spirit? You know, it certainly means that God does not have physical form as we have. Uh, It also means that God is not made of matter. God made matter, he is not made of matter. 
which means when we say that God is physical, we're not saying that God is like the air because the air is a created thing. God is not a vapor, that's a created thing. God is not energy, that's a created thing. God is spirit. Now, here's the, here's the problem when I say that. I'm, I'm finding it difficult to express that in a way that's understandable. And here's why. Almost all human learning happens by way of comparison. So, I mean, you can think about it. I mean, when we have little children in our home, and let's say you get a little picture book, and it's a book about, I don't know, birds. And then we show a picture of an ostrich, and we show a picture of a sparrow, and we're teaching our child that an ostrich is like a sparrow, not in terms of size, but in terms of you know feathers and a number of other things that make up birds. And soon we begin to compare one thing with another, and all human learning is based on comparison. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 46, verse 5. It says, to whom will you liken me? God is speaking through the mouth of the prophet. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? See, there is nothing that is like God. God is fundamentally different than the created order. He stands outside of the created order and is not to be compared with the created order. God is unique. He alone is spirit. Nothing else is. There's nothing in our experience that allows us to compare with spirit. So, so here's the real question. When the Bible says that we shall see him as he is, what is it that we're going to see? You know, one of the the greatest Christians in history, I mean, after the apostolic era, after the time of Jesus and the apostles, uh, was a man by the name of Augustine. And Augustine was struggling with this very same thing. And here's what he said. He said, it is possible, it is indeed most probable, that we shall then see the physical bodies of the new heaven and the new earth in such a fashion as to observe God in utter clarity and distinctiveness, seeing him everywhere present and governing the whole material scheme of things, Augustine said. Perhaps God will be known to us and visible to us in the sense that he will be spiritually perceived by each of us in each one of us perceived in one another perceived by each in himself or herself. He will be seen in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the creation itself, and so forth. In other words, we will see the hand of God in all things, and it will never escape our notice that God stands at the center of everything that is. And so there's this heightened perception, at least this is what Augustine thinks when he reads that we shall see him, that we shall see him in all the works of creation as we never thought possible before. That's possible. But I only raise this now because Augustine seems to understand the difficulty in the statement, we shall see him as he is. I also notice that in Revelation chapter 4, it's that time in when John writes Revelation that he says he was taken up into heaven, there's an image there of the throne on which God is seated. There's an image of the, the, the sea of crystal glass that's before the throne. There's an image of thundering and lightning and the 24 elders that surround the throne and the colors, the rainbow, everything else that surrounds the throne. But what's absent is the description of him who actually sits on the throne. It's as if John is saying, I have no words for that because it's important for us not to give the perception that God is like the sea of glass or God is like the rainbow or all the other things. He is unlike all other things. 
Now, having said that, however, there are some images in the Old Testament that, that do fascinate me when I think about seeing the face of God. Uh, I know that in Revelation, uh, we are told that, that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God and that the sea is no more, that is that there is no more divide between earth and the dwelling place of God. Uh, you know, when we come to the end of the book of Psalms, we find that Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 is a series of Psalms that have all been called the Songs of Ascent. In the Old Testament, people would journey to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And as they journeyed on festive, high and holy days, they'd go from all their surrounding towns and villages and make their way to Jerusalem. And Psalm 120 to 134 is a collection of the songs they sang. I was glad, very glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In other words, as the pilgrims came in the sight of Jerusalem, and you can imagine them walking there, they just break out into song and then they sing these glorious songs as they're waiting to go into the temple to worship. Ah. I have this sense that when we come to the, the, the text in Revelation, when we will see God face to face, I can imagine the inhabitants of the earth entering into the new Jerusalem, which has no temple for the Lord God is its temple. And it has no need for a sun or a moon because the Lord God is its light. That whatever it is that we see, we're so filled with joy that we sing, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion that cannot be removed, that abides forever, or like Psalm 124, if it had not been that the Lord was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed up alive. And we break into this spontaneous worship before him who sits on the throne. It is all that our hearts were made to do. I, if we're not thinking of worship, if we're not thinking of adoration, if we're not thinking of unbridled joy and a passion for the one who has redeemed and called us and the one who has sent his son to save us, if that's not what on our minds, then we're not thinking of the real thing. Heaven is about God. Heaven is about joy in seeing him. Heaven is about falling before him in adoration and worship and saying, yours alone is the glory. That's the joy of heaven. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, interesting, exciting to be in the presence of God and to see God as He is. What does that really mean? I know it's surprising to some people to hear me say that God is spirit and He does not have a corporal form. Okay. And I, the, the common objection that I've heard people say is, but doesn't the Bible say we're created in the image of God? Yeah. And we are created in the image of God because when the Bible says that we were created, we are created of the dust of the earth. So our physical form shares the properties of the created nature. But God breathed into us a breath. The Hebrew word is ruach, spirit. His breath was breathed into us and we became a living being. So it is that immaterial aspect of us that is the image of God, not the physicality of us. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, now this has been great. Where are we going next week? Yeah, we're going to continue to talk about especially what is our role in heaven. I I'm going to say it's not static. 
We are called upon to rule and reign with Christ. There's so much to talk about in terms of what God has destined for us throughout of all eternity. So it's not going to be boring. Yeah. It's going to be dynamic. Well, I find that fascinating because you're going to be talking about the fact that it's not going to be stereotypical in respect to what we see of standing around and singing hymns and things of that nature. God's got something for us to do. He's got something us to do. But Ben, I want to say, you know, that the singing, the joy and everything else is not standing around. It's just the fulfillment of the overflow of who it is to be in God. Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again right here next week on Truth and Life Today. <laughs>